Okay, we're going to be looking at our scripture, Matthew 22, 15 through 22. And this is um, a sermon uh, called The Coin and the Cross. So let me read the text for you. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to Jesus along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Well, the relationship between government and the church has always been a hot button, even back in the times of Jesus, and today is no separate, uh, is, is no separate deal. And we see here that the Herodians and the Pharisees, the enemies of Jesus, were trying to trap Jesus through bringing up this question of the relationship between the church and government. What belongs to Caesar? Specifically, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's very interesting, by the way, that it's the Herodians and the Pharisees that are joining together. Because the Herodians, they were the supporters of King Herod who was a puppet uh, installed by the Roman government. And then you had the Pharisees, who were close adherents and followers of the Mosaic Law, who hated Herod. And yet we see that they are united in their hatred of Jesus, in their concern about Jesus. And so they gather together and they ask this question to Jesus. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this question is what would be called a catch-22. In other words, you're damned if you say one thing and you're damned if you say the other. If Jesus says that it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then all of the people will discount him because the people who are under the onerous burden of paying a lot of taxes to Caesar think that they should not be having to pay taxes. But if he says that it's unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Romans will charge him with sedition and they will take him away. So Jesus, so they're asking the question thinking either way that he answers, we're going to finally get him out of the way. But Jesus responds in a way that they're not expecting. Show me the coin for the tax and whose likeness and inscription is on it. And they said Caesar's. Therefore, says Jesus, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, there are things that you are specifically to give to Caesar, and there are things that you are specifically to give to God. And these should not be intertwined. Specific subset of things that are owed to Caesar or to the government, and specific things that are owed to God. 
Now, it's important to understand that, of course, God owns everything. God is over the state. Romans 13.1 says, There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And Psalm 22.28 puts it this way, For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. But it's very clear that God has given certain duties and responsibilities that we have toward the government, toward the state. And it has been my experience that there is a tendency of Christians in America to give to government only that which we should give to God. And it hurts the witness of the church. And it robs us of confidence when the government does not come through with what we think that they should come through with. And so we need a clear understanding of what it is that we must render to government and what it is that we must render to God. And so those are the two points that, of this sermon. No, they're not three points. There are only two. Number one, what we must render to government. And number two, what we must render to God. So let's look at what we first must render to government. There are four things that the Bible says that we must render to government. The first is obedience to its laws. Romans 13.1 uh, 13, puts it this way. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So the scriptures say that we, as Christians, are subject to the governing authorities. In other words, we are supposed to obey the laws that have been handed down and promulgated by our government. Now, why is that? It's very clear. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Notice that, that God has put these leaders in place, in government, even those that are not Christians. They're not there by chance or by accident. They have been placed there specifically by God. But, you may say, this is a bad person. How could God have put this person in this position of authority? Sometimes God gives good authorities as a blessing, and sometimes he institutes evil authorities as a means of trial or judgment. But notice what the scriptures say. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Well, what if they implement laws that we don't agree with? The scripture here clearly says that that's not an excuse to obey it, to disobey it. God will accomplish his will even through human persons who stand against him. Isaiah 46.9 puts it this way, where God says, Remember the former things long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. 
So are you saying, Carlos, that we shouldn't resist any laws? No, there is a time when, there is, uh, when it is proper to resist laws. Only when God requires his people to disobey civil government if that obedience means directly disobeying God. We can disobey civil government if obedience means directly disobeying God. A good example of that would be in Acts 4, where the disciples are preaching Christ and the Sanhedrin imprisons the disciples and after beating them says to them, you may no longer speak about Jesus Christ. And what do they say? They say, we can't obey that. We can't help, but we must speak uh, because God has told us and ordered us to speak, and so we must speak. So there is a time, but that is the only time when God requires his people to disobey civil government if obedience means directly disobeying God. And so one of the things that we owe government is our obedience to its laws. Second thing that we owe government is to pay taxes. I'm so sorry to bring this up, by the way. I know it's a wound uh, for some, but to pay taxes. Romans 13:5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you must also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Now, we can protest saying, aren't the taxes that we are paying, aren't, isn't that revenue being used sometimes unjustly? Keep in mind that Paul is preaching during the time of the Roman Empire, and I can assure you that the Roman Empire surely did not use all of its money for godly purposes. And yet, the, the, uh, what Paul is saying is that God is saying that you must pay your taxes. Indeed, he goes so far as to say, for these authorities are ministers of God. Now, I thought Carlos was a minister of God. Well, I'm actually a pastor, but I'm also a minister. Minister means servant. But these, these leaders here, some who aren't even Christians, are being called ministers of God. Verse 4 of Romans 13 says, For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. These people in responsibility, in positions of responsibility, are actually considered God's servants. Now, they have been placed in areas of responsibility, and by the way, they have responsibilities, right? They are God's servant for your good. The government has responsibilities which they should carry out and don't always carry out, and they will be accountable to God for their uh, uh, the proper disposition of their duties or not doing their duties. But that's between God and them. The government should punish evil and encourage good. The government should safeguard human liberty. But the point is that we are accountable to God in paying taxes. Number three, honor and respect. Honor and respect is owed to government leaders. Listen to Romans 13, 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. 
Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. 1 Peter 2.17 goes even, for, uh, even more forward, where Paul says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. The emperor who was definitely not a Christian back then, and yet Paul is saying to honor the em emperor. What Paul is saying is that honor is owed to those in positions of authority and responsibility. Our culture has denigrated people in positions of authority and responsibility. But Christians, we are not to be like our culture. We are to give honor and authority. I think in particular, you know, how difficult it is being a police officer in these days and the amount of flack that they receive. These are people who are willing to stand in front of you and me and take a bullet. Honor and authority, uh, excuse me, honor and respect is owed for that as well as to our government leaders. He's not just Biden, he's President Biden. Just like Trump was President Trump. Why is he owed honor and respect? Simply because God says so. Now don't shoot the messenger, right? I'm just telling you what God's word says. What you do with it, well that's up to you. They're owed honor and respect our leaders. Fourth, prayer for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So we are to give supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving for kings and all who are in high positions. We are to pray for the government leaders in our community, in our state, and in our nation. Because it is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That's why we do it here in church, and I encourage you to do it in your private prayer time. Because it says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Well, what if I don't like him or her or agree with him or her? You're not doing it for him or her. You're doing it for God. Because God says to do it. So what is the point of all of this? The point is that God has placed people in authority. God is in control, my friends. We need not be worried. But we must, we have responsibilities uh, for these people in terms of what we are supposed to do. So do them for the sake of your witness and also for your conscience. Well, that brings me to my second point. I've just shared what we must render to, God, uh, to, to uh, the government now I want to talk about what we must render to God. Now there's a host of things that we can talk about here, right? Really, we must render to God everything, but there are two specific points, touch points that I think are important to touch on, what we must render to God in this day and age. And the first is what I call our identity. We must render our identity to God. Well, why is that? Well, it's because we belong to God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us 
Therefore, you are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. When you become a Christian, if you are a Christian, a transformation occurs. You are no longer the same person. And 1 Corinthians 16, 6.19 says, You are not your own. You were brought, bought at a price. So we belong to God. So our identity is God's people, God's individual. Indeed, we go so far as to say, I'm God's child, God's son, or God's daughter. Philippians 3.20 puts it this way, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now hear that. Our citizenship, where is our citizenship? It's in heaven. Paul was a Roman citizen, born and raised in Tarsus, but he's clearly communicated that my citizenship is in heaven. My primary identity of who I am is a citizen of heaven. He's not saying that I have dual citizenship. Now, some of us in, our, in, in, uh, in the congregation have dual citizenship. I think of Anne Durham, the lovely Anne Durham, who was born in Australia down under. She's a dual citizen. She has citizenship in Australia, and she has citizenship in the United States. So which rules and laws must she follow? Well, it depends on which state she's in, right? She has shared allegiances. But we, my friends, do not have shared allegiances. We do not have dual citizenship in that way of thinking. We have a primary identity. Our citizenship is in heaven. Yes, I am a resident and citizen of the United States of America, but that pales in comparison to my heavenly citizenship. They're not equal. One is above the other. Indeed, 1 Peter 2.11 goes so far as to put it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Aliens and strangers in this world. We do not belong to this world anymore. Our citizenship is in heaven. And as such, our conduct should be different to reflect who we belong to. Philippians 1.27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This uh, word, manner of life, politueste is the Greek. Polite, the first part of it, from where we get the word politics. A better way to translate it, or I should say the, the, uh, the more literal way to translate it, is only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. We owe him... God our identity, and we owe him our conduct. So how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as an alien and stranger in this world? Or do you want dual citizenship? My American citizenship and my heavenly citizenship are equal and I share them. You know, maybe on Sunday I'm a heavenly citizen, but during the week I'm an American citizen. That's not the way it works. The reality is the culture that we live in is antithetical to the gospel. We can't have both. 
Well, I've been talking about our individual identity, but I want to talk about our corporate identity, the nation that we belong to. What is the United States of America? It's a nation created by God. Indeed, all nations have been created by God. The Bible says so. It is the land of the free, the home of the brave. But there are many nations that can claim this as well, that our, their land is free and they have brave citizens in it. We, what is the United States? It is a great nation. People try to get in here. People get on boats. People try to smuggle themselves in. It is such a great nation that people want to be a part of it. But here is what it is not. The United States is not a special nation chosen by God to redeem the world. Nowhere in the Bible does God indicate a plan to redeem the world through a nation state. In other words, the U.S. is not the new Israel. Keep in mind, remember Israel, where God chose a nation out of all other nations and said to them, I will be with you and I will give you my laws and through you all the nations will be blessed. God's master plan since Israel has not been finding a new nation through which to save the world. He has created a new nation, and that nation is called the church. The church is the new Israel. It's multinational. It spans the globe and encompasses every tongue and tribe and nation. And it is a spiritual power. But we have a tendency to merge or fuse our American country with God's plan as Israel. I'm not a fan at all of having a flag, not that I don't love the United States flag, on the stage of a church. Because we're not meeting here in terms of under the flag of the United States of America. We're meeting under the flag of the church that's meeting all around the world. But this isn't our church. We rent it, and so the flag stays. But I'm not a fan of it. Jesus did not say to any nation, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So attributing a divine plan by God to bless the world and bringing salvation through the United States instead of by Christ through the church is idolatry. And we have to check ourselves at the door to make sure that we're not participating in that. See, the danger comes when Christians start thinking the USA, rather than the church, is the vessel of God's providential plan and His promise of covenant blessings. The sad truth is what is clear in the Bible is that all nations stand opposed to God's Son. And that includes the United States of America. The USA is not exempt from that charge. Psalm 2, 1 puts it this way. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. 
Jeremiah 51.7 says, Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. At the end of all things, when Christ comes, he will judge the nations. And they will all be found guilty. And that includes the United States of America, as sad as that is for me to say. But it's biblical truth. So if you are a Christian, you belong to the church, this is your home. This may be hard for some of you to hear because you've fused your Christianity and your American identity. But they're not the same. They're not even close to the same. If you continue to cling to your American identity equally with your Christian identity, you're giving to Caesar what belongs to God. And so you must choose. You must renounce your American citizenship as it relates to your heavenly citizenship. I'm not saying throw away your passport or anything like that. Hear me on this. But I'm saying that you must embrace your heavenly citizenship as your true identity. You must put your country in its proper place. Is it okay to love your country and to be a patriot? Absolutely. Is it okay to participate in American life and political life? Absolutely. But only to a degree. Remember that we are strangers and aliens here. We should vote. We should serve if God is calling us to office. We should seek the welfare of this great nation through promoting laws that benefit its people. But we should understand that our identity is not in this country, that we are part of the new Israel. We must give to God our identity. The second thing that we must give to God is our hope. We must render to God our hope. When Jesus came, he announced the kingdom of God that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's here, that it has come, and it is coming. But this kingdom, which Jesus inaugurated, grows through spiritual means, not political ones. When Jesus described the kingdom of God, he did not picture it as a formation of archers and chariots and legions, but as a man planting a crop, as the growth of a small mustard seed. It's something that grows invisibly, organically, and gradually. When Jesus walked the face of the earth, the crowds, the Jewish crowds, wanted to make him a political king by force. But he refused. He would always withdraw because that was not why he came. And that is not the nature of the kingdom of God. Remember Satan's temptation with Jesus? I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will worship me. What power to enact his program. But Jesus said, away from me, Satan. There was a time in Luke 12, 13, when someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? In other words, Jesus, we want you to take up this property dispute. We want you to be a judge like the judges. Jesus said, I came to judge, but not in that way. Because the way the kingdom grows, the way that we are saved, is not through external means, but through an internal transformation of the heart. God promised and prophesied through Ezekiel in 36.26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And how does this happen? How are people transformed and changed? It's not through a new law. It's through the hearing of the gospel. Romans 10.17, Consequently, faith comes through hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. The mechanism for transformation is the gospel of Jesus Christ, spoken by its people, spoken through the church. The Bible goes even further and says that it's a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. You see, you can't legislate that. You can't compel it. And so for all of these reasons, government, as good of an instrument as it is, cannot accomplish salvation or transformation. Even a very good civil government cannot save people from their sins. Making good laws and having good government is never enough to change the hearts of people. The people of Israel had great laws. In fact, they were given by God himself, and they still went astray. Therefore, winning elections is not enough to truly change a nation. You can overturn Roe v. Wade. You can implement defense of marriage laws, and it still won't be enough to stop people from getting abortions or having premarital sex. Because the, unless there is a change of people's hearts and minds from the inside out, it can only at its best try to legislate external behavior. For this reason, you and I must never put our hope in government for changing human hearts or making a nation of sinful people into righteous and holy people. Our hope is the gospel. But there is a tendency of us as Christians, of many of us, to put our hope in government leaders and laws. Now why is that? I think there are two main reasons. One is comfort and safety. We want Christian laws and Christian leaders to be in place because we want to be comfortable. We want to be safe. We want to have an environment, if you will, that protects us. But looking to anyone or anything other than God to protect us is idolatry. Philippians 4.19 says that God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We can trust in the living God regardless of whoever is in power. 
because His provision, His love, and His care for us does not change. Do we really believe that God is with us and will watch over us irregardless of the political climate? Or are we looking to government as an idol to give us comfort and safety? No, we must give our hopes to God. We must render to God what belongs to God. The second is the mistaken belief that Christian laws produce more Christians. It may alter the behavior, but only the gospel can change the heart of man. I love Romans 1.16 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of salvation for all those who believe. Do we believe that the Christian gospel is enough to transform the world? Do we believe that Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? The truth of the matter, my friends, is that Christianity thrives best in a, client, in a climate that's adverse to it. You want to see where Christianity is growing and exploding? Go to China. Go to the Middle East. Go to places where Christianity is outlawed and you see Christianity growing. So our hope is in God and God alone, not our government. When your political party loses, it's not the end of the world. When your political party wins, it's not the beginning of a new world. Our hope and our salvation is in Jesus Christ. Because Christ came into the world to die for your sins, if you are a Christian. And it's Him and His blood that gives us our righteousness, that gives us adoption, that gives us a future inheritance. As Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to heaven by which we must be saved. If your candidate lost this past presidential election, you may think the world is ending. It's not. If this president continues to enact policies that you feel is wrong for this country, and they may be, this world is perfectly on schedule. So don't give your hope to government. Give it to God. There are certain things that we owe our government, and there are certain things that we owe God. We will find peace when we render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. Let's pray. God, we thank you that our identity and our hope is bound up in you. God, you are the one worthy for us to entrust all our hopes, all of our salvation, all of our desires. So God, let us not render to Caesar these things in hopes that it can provide, because it can't. It never will. It wasn't designed to. But Lord, let us take our obligations to our government seriously, and let us take our obligations to you just as seriously, if not more so. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.